at these passages from the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 21 at verse 9, and we'll read to the end of the book. That's on page 1103 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to a human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of water, of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, 
and the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely. I desire, to, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Godwin. I'm the lead pastor here at Faith Church. And uh, hey, we're in the second week of our mini-series in the book of Revelation. We are uh, obviously in just a magnificent chapter, uh, in some ways maybe a complicated section of Scripture, but I'm just delighted to be able to open this up to you. Um, this is a really uh, 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 kind of a weighty vision for Christians to behold uh, by the Spirit, and uh, when we behold it, the Lord will help us carry on and press on, and hopefully we will see that in the next several minutes. In the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you may recall these words, memorable words. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. You may not know this. I certainly didn't until this past week. Fort Knox holds 5,000 tons of gold, which is approximately $173 billion worth, okay? So lots of precious materials there. And uh, I kind of wonder, what would your life and my life look like if we knew that we would be heir to more than the gold of Fort Knox? What would your life look like if you knew your heavenly Father was so wealthy and so kind that He will build for you a kind of city that is 1,500 miles long and deep and high made of pure gold? Or think about this. What if gold on streets were as normal to you as asphalt on Milford's Main Street? What would that feel like? What would the world, 
What would that world be like? This present world is kind of one big analogy for what is coming. We have before us in this kind of earthly existence kind of a shadow. But we, what we read in this passage is really the substance, the realest of real things. And so God uses this vision for John. He uses bits and pieces from the shadow, from, from our earthly existence, to start to explain the things to come, this beautiful city. So today we're going to dream a little bit. It's a little different kind of sermon today. We're going to dream a little bit with the Apostle John. Now, why is this sort of sanctified dreaming important? Have you ever said anything like, it was only the thought of blank that kept me going? It was the only the thought of seeing you again that kept me going. It was only the thought of the weekend that kept me going. It was only the thought of that great summer vacation coming up that kept me going. Well, friends, these verses are designed to help the early church, designed to help us today to keep going because we are tempted to store up treasures on earth, aren't we? We are tempted to lose our faith in Christ and place our faith in all kinds of worldly things. We're tempted to give up on Jesus when the going gets tough, when we suffer. And so something extraordinary, something captivating, something utterly beautiful Let's grab our attention more than mere earthly things. Here's the main point of this passage and uh, the sermon. You'll see it on your screens. Delight, delight in the city of God and press on today so you can reach it. Delight in the city of God and press on today so you can see it. Those are also our two points. So first half. We're going to talk about delighting in this city. In the second half, we're going to talk about pressing on. Most of the time I'm going to spend is actually on the first point. So, delight in the city of God, verses 9 through the next chapter, verse 5. We're going to kind of look at the city of God almost like a diamond. We're going to hold it up, and just, just as John kind of absorbs this great vision, we're going to kind of rotate that diamond and take a look at what is going on in this city. Now, last week, if you were here, we saw kind of a big picture, kind of a zoomed out view of this new creation. Well, this week, the vision John receives is kind of a zoomed in view. He saw the new Jerusalem as kind of a speck before. Now he sees it kind of up close and personal. And so this angel, notice in verse 9, this angel kind of becomes his tour guide and says, hey, come, I will show you the bride. I will show you the wife of the Lamb. We saw last week that the new creation is both a city as well as a bride, a people. And so the angel carries John away to this great and high mountain. He starts to look down and he sees the beauties, the intricacies of this city. Now, it's important for us to kind of set up the context here as we're trying to enjoy this city. We need to really kind of think about a different city that was actually back in chapter 17. It's fascinating to think about this other city. It was Babylon, the city prostitute that descended down, which John saw. It was Babylon who had jewels. It was Babylon who had pearls and gold. It was Babylon who had influence and power and sway. So, so Babylon is the city, of course, kind of an ancient city, but it's a picture from the Old Testament that is used by New Testament authors to describe the evil world of this age. And so we would say the ways of Babylon are still at work today. The church today resides within Babylon. So Babylon's kind of like a metaphor. That isn't, and, and that isn't always a pleasant experience, is it? You don't have to live long on this planet to think to yourself, man, there's got to be something more than this, right? 
C.S. Lewis says it this way, perhaps the universal experience of feeling unsatisfied with life tells us that we were made for something more than this world. I think he's right. So thankfully, the book of Revelation tells us in earlier chapters that we don't always have to put up with Babylon. In fact, Babylon will one day be judged and annihilated. And in its place, God will bring this city to earth. Now, what does this mean for today? What are some applications? Well, first of all, brothers and sisters, don't make Babylon your home. Don't get too comfortable within the doors of Babylon. Certainly, we're called to live within Babylon. We're called to immerse ourselves within the, the, the world today, and yet we are also called to be separate and distinct, right? The calling of the Bible is a calling of immersion and yet distinction. That's the call of the gospel. And so, if you feel a sort of rootlessness and restlessness in this Christian life, let me encourage you, that is a normal feeling for the Christian, for the faithful Christian. For the early church, this meant the gospel call was to disassociate from Rome, from Rome's idolatry and injustice and immorality. Of course, that was a challenge for them. It meant the loss of status. It meant the loss of prosperity. It meant an uncertain future, and it certainly meant suffering at the hands of, you know, people around them. Didn't like the Christian faith. Well, friends, the same is true for us today, isn't it? We feel these cultural pressures pressing in on us, the, 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 the kind of negative moral inertia of Babylon pressing in on us, and it's difficult for us to stay Christian sometimes, to continue to walk towards the celestial city. And then suffering hits us, and then we're tempted to kind of bail on Jesus sometimes, right? I want you to listen to this quote from Joni Erickson Tada. Some of you know her. She was a uh, woman who, uh, when she was younger, she, she dove into a pool of water, she broke her neck, and she's been paralyzed from the neck down. She has incredible insights into suffering, and she's done so much meditation upon this celestial city. Just listen to what she has to say. Quote, We pilgrims walk the tightrope between earth and heaven, feeling trapped in time, and yet with eternity beating in our hearts. Our unsatisfied sense of exile is not to be solved or fixed while on earth. Our pain and longings make sure we will never be content, but that's good. It is, our, it is to our benefit that we do not grow comfortable in a world destined for decay. Isn't that true? So, brothers and sisters, don't grow comfortable in Babylon. So, what's the alternative new Jerusalem, this new city like? We'll consider, look at verses 10 and following. First of all, I want you to notice, and we're going to see this all the way through this passage in chapter 21, this is a temple city a symbolic kind of amalgamation of not only a city, but a temple. Notice the incredible details that are included here. Every part of this temple city is meticulously designed and, and kind of each segment bears spiritual uh, meaning and purpose. Like what? Let's take a look a little bit more closely. Notice, first of all, this temple city shines forth with God's glory. There's this kind of physical manifestation of God's glory that this city contains, the glory of God, the public acknowledgement and enjoyment and appreciation of all that God is in His character and in His essence. That's going to be on public display. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's something that we are going to be able to enjoy. Uh, think about the, the old Jerusalem temple. It had one entrance, but notice in this temple city, there's gates on all four sides because according to the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, people enter from the 
four corners of the world. So this is an ingathering of all the different peoples into this holy city. In the ancient world, benefactors often had their names inscribed on their public works that they funded. And we see something similar here in verse 14. Notice, the temple city's foundations, their stones were inscribed with the names of the apostles. Do you see that? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church was created and secured by the word of the apostles. And notice not only, not only the 12 apostles, but the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gates. And so this tells us that all of the people of God, right, from both the old covenant as well as the new covenant, will enjoy this city. They're all welcomed in every nation, also every generation of God's people. And consider the dimensions of the city. Starting in verse 15, let me read a little bit of this to you. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Verse 17, then he measured its walls, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. In case you're wondering, is this a literal city or is this a symbolic city? And I had wrestled with that uh, this past week, and let me tell you where I landed. First of all, this is apocalyptic language, isn't it? Um, so let me give you an example. Um, the lamb. The lamb is, is, is scattered all the way through the book of Revelation. The lamb, the lamb, and it's a reference, of course, to Jesus. Now, we don't think that Jesus somehow like morphed into an actual lamb, do we? I mean, Jesus is a guy, but the lamb is a great kind of picture from the Old Testament, which depicts the fact that he was slain for sinners, right? We're going to get to that later. So that's kind of what, what Jesus represents. So, so the dimensions of the city are meant to convey kind of a heavenly meaning beyond just the earthly picture, Okay. So let's think about this a little bit more specifically. Notice it says 12,000 stadia. That's about 1,500 miles. So 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, and 1,500 miles high. This is unbelievable, right? This thing is just gargantuan. Now, think about this with me. It's a perfect cube. It's a square. It's a cube. Can you think of something in the Old Testament that was also a perfect cube, and a very important place, the Holy of Holies. It had very specific dimensions to it. It was also a cube. So this is the center of the temple, the center of ta the tabernacle. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark, which is the footstool of God. And so this place uh, in the Old Testament represented the very presence of God. This is where God decided to place his presence. And, and, and the people of God could never go into this most holy of holy places. Only once a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle blood to atone for the sins of his people. So friends, I think this is what's going on here. This city is God's new holy of holies. And the square footage of this perfect cube appears to be the approximate size of the Greek world in the first century. So it seems that this vision is telling John that the whole new creation world is going to become the holy of holies. Isn't that cool? God isn't going to dwell in the center of some temple or tabernacle. He's not going to even dwell just in the hearts of his people by way of the Spirit in the midst of Babylon. No, his presence in this new creation will be everywhere, will permeate everything not just here 
and there. Can you imagine? Notice verse 18 and following. It starts to kind of showcase the incredible building materials. And I want you to notice this is so important. The preciousness of these materials is meant to kind of correlate to the the utter preciousness of this place, the utter uh, sanctity and holiness of this place. Again, we find a lot of symbolism, which has profound meaning. So everything in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was overlaid with gold. Exodus chapter 25. Here, notice, the entire city is pure gold. The foundations of wall of the walls were adorned with different kinds of jewels. We see that in verse 19 and following. Friends, these same stones were on the high priest's breastplate. And these stones were associated with the Garden of Eden, if you look at Ezekiel. Solomon used these stones to lay the foundation of his temple. And what does this all mean? It means these jewels reflect the utter beauty of of God himself. So the glory of God that's kind of dimly reflected in all these other things, whether it's the Garden of Eden or the tabernacle or the, the high priest's vestments, that's kind of dimly reflected. But here in the new Jerusalem, it's supremely and fully on display. In other words, God is showing off. This is kind of his transfiguration moment. Do you remember this in, I think it's Mark chapter 9, right? Jesus and his three disciples, his his kind of inner circle, they go up the mountain, and then Jesus is revealed, unveiled in his glory. Just for a moment. It's a brief moment, but it is powerful, right? Well, here in this city, that's going to be the normal experience. That's going to be every day, and that's going to be for all of God's people. Can you imagine that? Now think of the spectacular colors, the brightness of these jewels that would kind of reflect, uh, re- reflect from these jewels as the light, the light of the sun comes uh, upon them. And I'm talking about S-O-N, the light of Jesus coming upon these jewels. And think about the, just the, the, the absolute beauty of what you would see in this city. It's like standing before, I don't know, maybe the Grand Canyon or a beautiful ocean vista. You know, think of the most beautiful scene you've ever seen. That's just an old postcard compared to this dazzling, holy of holies city. And all these precious stones and metals, they're, they're also meant to shout out to us something else, the limitless wealth that God has, right? Uh, what are the greatest cities in history? Maybe you're thinking ancient Alexandria or Ur or Jonah's Nineveh. These were glorious cities back in the day. Maybe it's London in the early 19th century or New York City in the early 20th century or uh, Tokyo or Shanghai in the 21st century. Well, friends, this future city we have in front of us, the city of God is far beyond, far beyond any of these. Its resources, its magnificence are beyond anything we can imagine. Look at verse 18 and verse 21. Notice the the pure and transparent gold that's in this city, and it far supersedes the gold that's in Fort Knox, right? And it's not the kind of gold that gets locked up over here in the corner just for us to kind of think about now and then. This is getting used. This is getting used in the city everywhere. God uses it to pave the streets. Moses was instructed to remove his sandals because he was standing on holy ground before the burning bush. Here we have the ultimate holy ground, don't we? But the people who walk this street will have clean feet because of the blood of Jesus. There's no need to remove your shoes or to wait or to hesitate or to kind of get to know the rules and boundaries of this place. In this place, in this city, you are free to move around. You are free to enjoy the presence of God. 
Can you imagine it, friends? Now look at verse 22 with me, chapter 21. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Wow. You know, God is with us right now in part by way of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Um, we are called by the Apostle Paul, the temple of God. The church is the temple of God, but it's kind of this temporary situation. But notice in this new Jerusalem, this temple city, God will live among his people. And there's no need, as I mentioned earlier, for light because his glory and the glory of his son are going to light this thing up. You know, you've probably never done this before, but if you were to take a flashlight into a really bright day and turn it on, what's going to happen? You're not going to see very much of that light, right? That's kind of what's going on here. The glory of God and the Lamb will so outshine the sun and the moon and the stars that they will no longer be necessary. There's something so powerful and visceral about experiencing God's glory. And put your eyes on verses 24 through 26. We see all of a sudden the nations are involved. The idea here is that as the nations and kings are brought into the city, life will be conducted by, by the light of God's glory. And so those who rule on earth will live by God's glory, and their glory will be added to God's glory. So there's no more false pride. There's no more vain glory or idolatry. There's no more looking out for number one because... God is going to be very clearly number one. There's no more interacting with others who think that they're God's gift to humanity, right? Because everyone will know that God is the great gift of this new world. I notice the gates of the city, they're always open. Interesting picture, right? There's nothing that's going to harm the people in this city. No one will come in and infiltrate the city. The wicked, they're in the lake of fire, right? And they can never enter the city to spoil it. Nothing will be, bring danger or harm or disease to this city. And friends, the, the residents of this city are only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That might sound a little unfair, but God doesn't owe any of us one ounce of mercy, does he? The question isn't why didn't God choose her, but rather why does God choose anyone at all for this new world? We don't deserve it. You know, he, he mercifully writes some into the Lamb's book of life. Many of us here have our names in that book. Praise God, right? What incredible mercy. Praise God. We're going we're gonna to get into this city. And as we turn our attention to chapter 22, what else do we see? Look at verses 1 through 5. Let me read these to you. This is such incredible imagery. And ask yourself, this sounds familiar. Where does this come from, okay? 22, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. All of a sudden, the picture is shifting from a temple city to a garden city. Do you see that? Friends, this is the Garden of Eden restored. 
A river flows through the garden city, just like a river flowed through Eden. And the river feeds, notice, the tree of life. And yes, this is the tree of life that stood in the garden of Eden. It's back. The way to the tree of life has been opened. And notice that the tree of life not only sustains life, but restores life, for its leaves heal the nations. Oh, friends, that's such good news. All those dysfunctional and broken and dark places about you or about your loved ones, this new world has the capacities to heal and restore. You won't be that way forever. Not good news? What encouragement. But I want you to notice verse 1. The key, the key here is that this life-giving river flows, notice, from the throne of God and the Lamb. You see that? What does this mean? It means that God and His Son Jesus will give us life in this new creation. So it's not like you, you, you go to heaven or you go to this new earth, you know, in the next stage, and, and you become immortal, and then you kind of live out these self-sustaining lives, independent from God. Sometimes I think we think heaven is like that. That's not how it is at all. In the new creation, friends, we live forever because we are given life through Jesus in every moment. So today, your life is completely sustained by Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 1. So your heartbeat, it's going on right now, every heartbeat that you have, every breath that you take from your lungs, every synapse that kind of fires off in your brain, it's all sustained by Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Well, friends, in the new creation, it's the same thing. A million years from now in the new creation, it is Jesus that will sustain your life. You will be dependent on Him, and you will be aware of it, and you will love it, unlike many days today, right? That will be your existence. And here's the greatest thing of all. Look at verse 4. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Friends, we will see him face to face. Is there anything better than that? If you're a Christian, the deepest longing of your heart is to see Jesus face to face, to behold him in the flesh. Can you imagine that? In Genesis chapter 3, you guys know this story, the, the angels kind of blocked the way back into the garden so that sinful humanity can't get into God's presence, right? In Exodus chapter 33, God told Moses, you can't see my face for no one may see and live. But look at what we have here, friends. In this new Eden, in this new garden city, we will see God's face and we will bear his name on our foreheads. We all bear marks of this old covenant this old creation life, excuse me, we all bear marks of this old creation, right? Whether it's heart-level wounds or physical injuries or uh, physical disabilities or painful memories. But friends, if our names are in the Lamb's book of life, we will not only have new hearts and new bodies, we will not only uh, have the tree of life to heal us, we will have the mark of this new creation on our being. The name of the Lamb, because we are His and He is ours. Is there anything better than this? 
So as this vision kind of comes to this crashing conclusion in these chapters, we see this magnificent truth. I want to just hold it out before you that our final state in this new creation will be one of beholding. It's going to be one of enjoying. It's going to be one of treasuring God and His Lamb. Even this majestic city, every part of it is meant to remind us, not of the glory and the supremacy and the beauty of the city, but, but, but to remind us of the glory and supremacy of the triune God. He is the ultimate prize of this new world, right? Like we talked about last week, the goal of salvation isn't heaven. The goal of salvation is you get God. You get God himself and his son, Jesus. He is the ultimate prize. It's his face that we long for. It's his presence that will satisfy us. Nothing else. And friends, that's what's coming your way if you are in Christ. I hope you see this, friends. In this chapter, why are these, these words here before us? Why are we kind of dreaming about all of these crazy things about this city and, and thinking about them carefully? Well, God wants to entice you. God wants, you know, he, He's after your hearts. He's after your affections. He wants us to delight in the city and the one who made this city for you. You know, there's some things in this life that are wishful thinking, winning the lottery, Playing in the NBA, driving a Ferrari, paying the cost to maintain that thing. But friends, this is not wishful thinking. This is not wishful thinking. This is God's effectual plan for his people. This is going down. This is happening. So let your heart kind of daydream about these things sometimes. Take pleasure in, in all of the intricacies of this city, from its symbolic connotations to the absolute grandeur and beauty of this city. Now, some of you find it difficult to delight, perhaps, in anything right now, let alone this future city. It's difficult, right? Some of you are so overwhelmed by the day-to-day, -day, the humdrum of this life, that it's difficult to feel the weighty glory and the overwhelming beauty of this city, I understand. I feel flat sometimes too. And that's precisely why this passage exists before us. To wake us up. Wake us up to these realities, right? Brothers and sisters, there is a finite amount of suffering in this life. But there is an infinite amount of delights ahead. An eternal weight of glory that far surpasses all of your trials and suffering. That, that's what God has for us. And I want to invite you to imagine that. So the first thing we see again is to delight in this city. We're invited to do that as we're peering in on John's vision. The second thing I want to, want to do is kind of, as we come to a close, look at the last part of chapter 22. So press on today so you can reach this city. Press on today so you can reach this city. Here we are. We got two feet in Milford, right? And we may be far from this celestial city. I don't know. We want to get there. How do we get there? Well, this passage kind of moves from this final vision to final instructions, a sort of epilogue where the concern of this angel and Jesus, those who are speaking, the concern of those guys is to help John, to help the seven churches, to help us arrive at this city. Okay? How do we get home? Lots of stuff going on in these verses. I'm not going to be able to unpack all of it. It seems kind of like this hodgepodge of instructions. But the, the basic thrust uh, of this section is to help John, help the churches to press on. 
to persevere. The very end of Revelation, God wants to make sure that John and his readers will trust his words. Look at verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. That's the second time he said that in this chapter. What he's trying to say is, listen, you can count on this happening. You can really trust that this will happen. Um, This isn't kind of make-believe. This isn't mythical or fantasy like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. This is the real deal. And so in light of that, let me give you three applications, three ways from this section to press on in the Christian faith, okay? Here's the first way. Keep God's words. Keep God's words. Look at verse 7 with me. This is Jesus saying, he's, he's, he's talking, and he says, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who, here it is, keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. John kind of falls down. He starts to worship the angel, and the angel's like, dude, what are you doing, right? Don't do that. Look at verse 9. But he said to me, the angel, don't do that. (laughs) I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who, here it is, keep the words of this book. Worship God. Friends, there are too many forces that press in on you, trying to pull you off the path of the city. Satan is a lion, and he's trying to destroy your faith. Your sinful flesh battles against you each and every day. This world offers a kind of, and I mentioned this before, kind of this negative moral inertia that wants to deceive you and confuse you. And so you got to stay close to God's words. you got to keep them. That's been the drumbeat all the way through the book of Revelation. From the letters early on to those seven churches, Jesus gives instructions, and at the end of each of those letters, he says, he who overcomes will receive this prize. And then chapters 4 through 21, kind of the body of the book of Revelation, you you see judgment being carried out through these cycles of vision. So seven bowls and seven plagues and so forth. And it's all judgment coming down on the earth. God's going to purge the earth of evil. And in the midst of those visions, several times where God, uh, through an angel or Jesus, punctuates those visions with this statement, and he's calling God's people to persevere. That's the burden of this book. That's what he's trying to do, especially when we're suffering, when testing comes. How will we respond? How will we respond when life is difficult? Friends, we must press on. We must press on by keeping God's word. So let me just encourage you, press on in holiness. Press on in the fight for purity. Press on, brothers and sisters. Press on as you're trying to cling to and hold on to the biblical sexual ethic over and against what's going on out there. Press on as you parent. Press on as you grandparent. Press on. Keep these words. Hold this vision before you. That's the first application. The second one is this. Unleash. Unleash God's word. Look at verse 10. Then the angel said to me, John, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. This is really interesting because back in Daniel, we studied this a couple uh, years ago or a year ago or something like that. Uh, Back in Daniel, at the end of that book, the angel told Daniel, hey, I'm giving you this vision, but I want you to seal it up. Like, keep it closed for a time. But here, this angel tells John, I want you to open this up. I want you to tell people and spread the vision. This vision is meant to be spread. This vision of judgment and salvation. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't just talk about salvation and avoid judgment because, friends, judgment fills out what people can be saved from, right? 
It's important for us to talk about that. They need to know that. They need to be warned, but also wooed. Warned of this hellish lake of fire, but then wooed towards this celestial city. Friends, who needs to be warned and wooed in your sphere of influence? Who needs to hear about this great vision of the end? This vision is meant to be opened up, right? Who needs to hear about it? And why such urgency? We can feel the urgency in this passage, right? Well, look at verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. That's good news for those of us that are Christians. But look at verse 15. Outside, this is talking about outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. As you read that list, you might be thinking, wait a second, I've done some of those things before. I've been on the outside of God's people at some point. Maybe you feel like that right now. What's going on here? Well, when Jesus returns, he will separate humanity into these two groups, those outside and those inside the city, those who have rejected Christ and those who have trusted in Christ, those who have lived in persistent sin and those who have found salvation in Christ. How do we get inside the city? How do we do that? Well, notice it says in verse 14, we have to wash our robes. You see that? Interesting imagery, right? What does that mean, wash our robes? Well, I want you to flip back. Get your Bibles. Flip back to Revelation 7. Such a cool passage, and it answers that very question. What does it mean to wash our robes? How do we get into this city? Look at verse 9 with me. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, John's looking, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed, here it is, in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now put your eyes on verse 13. And one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where do they come from? And John said to him, sir, you know. <laughs> like, Why did you ask me? You know, tell me. And then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There it is. It's the blood of Christ that washes us clean so we can get into this city. There's great urgency to this as we're looking at Revelation 22. Listen to Thomas Watson, okay, great Puritan. Listen to what he says, quote, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. Oh, friends, if we can hold that before us. As we walk into our neighbors, uh, neighborhoods or offices or as we think about Thanksgiving week and, and welcoming perhaps people, family members that don't know Jesus into our homes, if we can just hold that thought. Friends, who needs to hear about this vision? Number three, final application, hope. Hope in God's words. Look at verse seven. Jesus says, look, I am coming. And then verse 20, he who testifies about these things says, this is Jesus again, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, everything in this eschatological dream starts with Jesus coming back. 
That was the great hope of the early church. That is our great hope as well. If you center your hope in God's city, as great as that is, your hope will actually be misplaced. If you center your hope on the healing leaves of the tree of life, as wonderful as that restoration and renewal is, your hope will be misplaced. But if you can find a way to center your hope on Jesus, if you can find a way to center your hope on the Lamb who was slain for sinners, whose blood was applied to the doorposts and lintels of our hearts so that God's judgment would pass over us, so that we could enter the Holy of Holies and enjoy God's presence. If you can locate your hope in Christ, then you'll assuredly find yourself in this city someday. And I pray that the deepest ache of your hearts could be captured by those closing words. Come, Lord Jesus. I hope you read those words and you say to yourself, that's exactly my daily prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. I think of my dear friend Dave Eklund, member of Faith Church, passed away a few years ago, who in his final months and years, as his body was frail and starting to kind of come undone a little bit, his heartbeat, every time you talk to this, this man, Dave Eklund, every time you talk to him, his heartbeat, his message was on the tip of his tongue, is come, Lord Jesus. Those of you that know him know exactly what I'm saying. Friends, perhaps that great day of Jesus' appearing will be in our time. Can you imagine that? Perhaps it will not only be the Apostle John who gets to see all this crazy stuff, but maybe it's Faith Church who gets to bear witness to this incredible second coming of Jesus. Perhaps it'll be you and me who see a white rider, excuse me, a rider on a white horse. Perhaps it's you and me who are going to see this Jesus figure whose name is faithfulness and truth. And he rides in righteousness and justice against all opposition, and his robe is dipped in blood, and he has a tattoo on his thigh that reads King of Kings, and he will strike down all of his enemies, and he's going to gather up all of his people throughout the history of the world. He's going to establish the kingdom of his Father in this new creation, and he will wipe away every tear. Brothers and sisters, we are one day closer to that day. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to reflect on this passage, prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.